You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 83. I'm Dan Prosser, joined as ever by Andrew Frankel. Uh, now, Andrew, um, last week there was a new Mercedes-Benz SL revealed. Actually, it's called the Mercedes-AMG yes. SL. Um, yeah. We'll come to that in a moment. Um, but we're, and we will talk about it a little bit, but we're actually just going to use that as an excuse to talk about some of the really quite wonderful cars from Mercedes-Benz that have used the SL nameplate if you like there are some quite extraordinary cars in there amazing variety of cars too amazing variety yeah so yeah things like the gullwing things like even the, the mclaren mercedes slr um the 300 slr and a very special version of that which you have driven so some extraordinary cars that we can sink our teeth into um but before we get into sls we just need to talk about some recent news concerning mclaren automotive do you want to fill us in yeah yeah they have a, they i'm about to say they have a new chief executive officer they don't they're looking for a new chief executive officer because mike fluitt the man who has done that job for the last eight years has gone um so um the brief history is that when mclaren automotive launched with the 12c and i think 2010 despite the car obviously having an awful lot of promise um that launch was widely perceived to have been botched because the car wasn't ready and there were problems with it and so on and so the navigation didn't work and it didn't handle quite the way it should have and so on and so forth so um the sort of the visionary presence behind that uh, and indeed um the p1 as well um Anthony Sheriff was replaced by Mike Fluitt, whose background was at Ford building cars. Um, and essentially, the reputation that McLaren has today was built on his shoulders. Now, that reputation, um, there are two sides to it. On the one hand, um, you know, some amazing cars have been built, haven't they? You know, you think of, um, well, just the road cars. You think of, uh, you know, things like the 720S, which I still think is 
probably the most impressive supercar I've ever driven. Um, and all the other things that they've done. And, and I think it is amazing that in such a short period of time, McLaren has built, McLaren Automotive has built itself up to be, you know, a genuine, incredible rival, can absolutely hold its head up high um, in companies well established as Ferrari and Lamborghini. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, it's no secret that um, McLaren has struggled of late. Um, some through reasons beyond its control others not um, you know too many cars got built there were too many uh, reliability issues and this led to um, residual values being hit hard um, and um, you know and people getting nervous about buying those cars and you know we know that um, there was this big restructuring um, they had to do a sell and lease back on their premises um, MTC um and so you know i've always you know as a driver as an enthusiast i've i love mclarens and and i would say now um that those that i've had and i ran a 720s for six months and apart from i think the 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 headlights very briefly stopped being able to look around corners and that was literally the only thought i had with the car and i drove the nuts i mean i drove it to geneva and back i I, i've flogged it around tracks i really really gave that car a proper workout and it never went wrong. I then spent quite a few months in a McLaren GT. Um, and that didn't go wrong either. Uh, nothing like as nice a car. But anyway, uh, but the perceptions are perceptions. Um, and so, you know, and so, and so McLaren is today a company which, you know, you know, we, we, we were meant to have been driving the Artura by now, but that's, that's gone back. Um, and you know we're told that, that might have something to do with sob software issues i don't know whether I, I don't know why mike has gone um you know there are people inevitably jumping to all sorts of conclusions i'm not going to do that because i genuinely don't know um but you know for myself um you know i think that he helped build a company which has produced some amazing cars which i will always feel lucky to have driven um so yeah, um, they've got to find someone to replace him. I mean, it's not necessarily going to be a terribly easy job because, you know, it's not like McLaren is owned by some, you know, massive uh, OEM like Volkswagen or, you know, Mercedes-Benz or BMW. It's it's very much one-man band. It's not dissimilar in that regard to Aston Martin, even though Aston Martin does have Mercedes-Benz holding its hand to a greater and greater extent these days. Um and so, you know, given that there are problems with the company, given that it is you know, considerably in debt, um, you know, I, I think that a lot of people might think twice before taking on that job. But, you know, if you are the person who can turn it around, um, if the Artura is as good in reality as it appears to be on paper, um, then it could, you know, the future could still be absolutely amazing for that company. But, um, I mean, it's absolutely at a crossroads, isn't it? And, um you know, we wait with interest to see what happens next. So, yeah. I mean, I always um, enjoyed Fluit's company. You know, the, the thing about Mike Fluit is that, you know, whatever he may or may not um, be as a corporate animal, as a car enthusiast, you know, he, he likes what we like. You know, he races, you know, an old Lotus Elan, Lotus Elite. He loves cars that are driver's cars. You know, it's one of the reasons I'm sure that McLaren still have hydraulic steering is is because of you know of, of his the purity of his of, of, of you know of the way that he thinks about these things and you know he loves lightweight cars i'm sure that's also the reason that mclaren's remain lighter than any other cars in their class you know he's a proper car guy yeah so products was never really the issue was it during the fluid era mclaren automotive built some extraordinary sports cars and supercars and hypercars 
um, some cars that will be revered for decades to come. But it's no secret that the company had enormous structural, financial issues, um, also reputational with um, reliability, with residuals. So the product is the least of the new CEO's worries, whoever that turns out to be. It's, it's all the other stuff, really, that needs his or her attention, isn't it? Um, but also, I mean, we've spoken about it before. Never mind all that stuff. This is the toughest time to be a car company's CEO, probably, with legislation the way it is and the banning of petrol, petrol and diesel engines in the coming years in countries around the world. It's almost a thankless task, isn't it? I just, wow, it's a, it's a big job. Uh, so, okay, so talking about McLarens, we know a bloke, don't we, who's owned a couple, um, has one now. He's got a 675LT, one of the best McLaren automotive cars, I would say. I love that thing. Um, and this is a bloke called RS Driver 00. And I raise it now because uh, he's recently actually announced publicly that he is involved with the intercooler. Um, he, is, he is one of our partners uh, in the business. Um, and he's been quiet until now, but he, di- he has announced that his involvement, his interest, um, and it's significant for us, isn't it? Because, I mean, he is a petrol head to the core, um, and he's someone who, quite apart from the fact that he's very generous with his extraordinary collection of cars and lets us drive them, which we'll talk about soon, um, he's, he's the right person to help us grow the intercooler, find a bigger audience, expand everything that we do across all the different platforms, make the app better. So actually, it's, it, it's an exciting time for us, isn't it? He just ticks every box, doesn't he? Um, and, you know, he's already been an enormous help to us um, in many different ways um, and will continue to. Uh, I haven't, I, actually, we haven't even really begun to work our way through his car collection, but we will, won't we? Um, we will, we will plunder every corner. He's got all sorts of things there, which um, I need to go and have a, uh, a go in. So um, yeah, if you want to go and follow him on Twitter and, and Instagram, it's RS Driver zero zero on both. He's at, he's asked that we don't actually reveal his full name, so we're going to respect that. But um, yeah, go and follow him, and you can learn what cars he's got what his attitudes towards cars are and you'll see that he's he's one of us so very very encouraging for us to to have him with us good okay uh well should we get stuck into the meat of this episode of the podcast the the mercedes amg sl and we we do have to call it that now because it is just uh an amg product yeah it's you know it's uh it's a pure amg product i mean my understanding is that it's been developed by AMG for AMG, um, in, and in the same way as the GT or the SLS, um, it's uh, it, it's an AMG car through and through. And you know you can only get at the moment um, the four liter twin turbo V8, the ubiquitous four liter twin turbo V8, available in two different power outputs. Um, and yeah, no, I think uh, AMG product it will remain. So it's the R two three two. That's the model designation. Um, and there's the SL55 and the SL63. They're, they're the two versions that will be familiar um, from previous generations. 476 horsepower or 585 horsepower. Plenty. Um, but they're both four-wheel drive, which is, uh, that's a departure from what's come before. Um, that's an interesting move, isn't it? I suppose it suits the more sort of relaxed Grand Tourer nature of that car compared to the GT, which is an out-and-out sports car. And it is a 2 plus 2, which is probably important because it differentiates it from the GT Roadster. Um, Otherwise, they'd have two very similar cars in the same space in the market. Um, 
The SL63 does weigh 1,970 kilograms. <laughs> that officially makes it a porker, doesn't it? Uh, so, I mean, we'll, it's probably a few months before we get to drive it, but we look forward to doing that. Um, but anyway, I mean, there are much more sort of interesting SLs that we can get stuck into now. Where do you want to start? Should we go all the way back to the original SL, 300 SL in the 50s? I'd like to go further than that, because Rudy Udenhout, who's someone we will talk about later on, when asked what SL meant, he said it stood for super light. Um, whereas um, conventional thinking uh, has always been that it means sports light. And so super and sports and light, there are only, there's only one car that had all three elements in it, and that was that SSKL from 1931. So I suspect the original germ of that idea, at least, um, came from way back. Um, and then um, the first proper SL was a thing called the W194, which was a racing car, which Mercedes produced in 1952. Um, and the reason they did it was um, Mercedes has been utterly dominant in Grand Prix racing before the war, um, you know, with these extraordinary, monstrous um, racing cars, uh, won everything. Um, but obviously, <laughs> their financial position was somewhat different after the war, um, and they wanted to get back into racing, but they had no money. Um, There's no way they could contemplate doing Grand Prix racing in the you know, very early 1950s. Um, and so they went to... Rudy Ullenhout and said, "Well, what can we do?" And he said, "Well, you know, we can do a, we could do a lightweight space frame chassis. We could use a road car engine in it, and we could do this very clever, super aerodynamic body. Um, stick that on top, and we won't have as much power as the Ferraris um, or the Jaguars because you can only get the engine to go to three liters. Um, but we might just be a bit cleverer than them, uh, and we'll certainly be more slippery than them. And let's see what we can do. And so that's where the Gullwing came from." um the w194 and it went on and it, and it won it won at the nurburgring won at le mans in 1952 um it won the carrera panamericana and this was you know some people have said it's the most important mercedes racing car the post-war era because it put mercedes back on the map um and it gave them the confidence um I actually drove one, amazingly, uh, in Mexico because it must have been celebrated. It must have been in 2002, I would think, or, um, when they were celebrating the 50th anniversary of winning the Carrera Panamericana. Um, and so they invited a few hacks over and, and we did quite a lot of the Panamerican Highway um, from sort of um, Mexico City down towards Guatemala. And um, yeah, what an amazing thing. Um, I mean, so light, so slippery, so um, incredibly advanced. It's just one of those cars you're driving it along. You just can't believe that, you know, this thing was conceived in the early 1950s. Um, and, you know, what they lacked in money at the time, they just made up for in spades with just smart thinking. Um, and they blitzed it, you know. Um, they were just more reliable than anybody else. Um, and the cars, as I said, they may not have had the power, Um but they still had the performance because they were so slippery. And they had some great drivers, particularly, you know, drivers from the pre-war era, like Rudy Caracciolo was still around and Herman Lang was still around. And yeah, and they went off and they blitzed it. So um, that's where, and it's that car that most people think is where the SL came from. And Mercedes themselves, I don't think have ever said specifically, which is why people still talk about it to this day. And that car, obviously, they thought, oh, that went quite well. Let's do a road car. 
Um, and that's where actually the road car was the result of a bloke called Max Hoffman, who was also responsible for the Porsche Speedster. Who he, you know, Max Hoffman was a bloke who imported really nice German cars into North America, um, and you know, and, and and he was a guy who said, well, you know, who go to companies like Porsche and Mercedes and say, if you can build us this sort of car, we can sell loads of them over here. And they listened and they did, and that's where the famous Gullwing 300 SL came from, uh, which went into production in 1954, and um, yeah. And uh, we've never not had one since. Wow, that was a lot. <laughs> oh, Sorry. Top of <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you got me on a roll. We really did. That was fantastic. Uh, okay, so let's stay in the 50s then. Um, I, I, we could talk about SL road cars, but we're in the 50s, so let's stay in that, that era. Um, and let's talk about the 300 SLR which was the, the roofless car. That was a racing car, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but the, but the, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it had nothing to do with the 300 SL, really. Um, it, okay, it, it, it had the S and the L. Um, and people have said, and, and, and people sort of say, oh, yeah, that was the racing version of the 300 SL. It absolutely wasn't. It was, it was the sports version of the Formula One car. So Mercedes, um, by the mid-1950s, the situation was somewhat better and they felt they could go back to Formula One. And so they produced the W196 Formula One car, which won the world championship for Fangio in 1954 and 1955. Um, and they produced for 1955 um, the, sport, the, the, the sports car version of it, which had a three-litre engine rather than a two-and-a-half-litre engine because that's what the regs said you could do. And as we all know, we're not going to get back into it because Sterling went off and won the Minamilia in it and you know, the Targa Florio and you know, whoop-de-doop. That was, that was all amazing. Um, but they also made a couple of coupes, um, which... They were going to race in longer distance races and things like the Carrera Panamericana, but that got cancelled. Um, and um, so they never raced. Um, and so uh, Rudy Udenhout, the chief engineer, incredible development driver uh, that Mercedes had at the time, um, basically used them or used one of them as his company car. And he used to sort of knock about on the road. In, and it really is a Formula One racing car with enclosed bodywork. Um, that's and, extraordinary <laughs> oh it is absolutely extraordinary and it looks absolutely extraordinary um, and one of the greatest privileges of my career to date was um, they only have made two Mercedes still has both of them um, but one of them hasn't run for a very long time but the other one they keep in functioning condition um, and they let me have a go on a track um, and I mean it would have been the most horrible road car because it's so loud uh, and it's so it's, it's not very tractable um, and it needs an awful lot of management. Um, but when it gets going, wow. I mean, and just to see this thing and to drive it around a Mercedes test track. Um, and, and when you get in it, you know, you know, you're in a racing car because your, your, your legs are basically, you know, about three feet apart. You know, you, your left leg goes that way down to the clutch. Your right leg goes that way. And you've got this massive transmission tunnel between them. Um, and so you've got the brake and the um accelerator on the right clutch on the left um and um yeah and, and if you just took the body off it you'd see the formula one car underneath and he was knocking about on the road with it. they always used to say that you could hear him long before you ever saw him when he was sort of you know they'd always know oh right we better all stand to attention now because the boss is coming and like 10 minutes later he'd turn up um, this thing was so loud um and yeah it's just a shame that um they never got to race because I think the well, they would have been amazing. But um, also, but the other point was is that they didn't really need to race because the 
the open SLR um, was just, it just won everything. Pretty, I didn't, yeah, I'm not sure it was ever beaten in a straight fight. So they, did, they just didn't need to do it. So they didn't, but did, yeah. Did they also get scrapped because... Because of the Le Mans 55 disaster and Mercedes pulling yeah, out of racing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Mercedes withdrew. You're absolutely right. Mercedes decided after the Le Mans disaster in 55 to withdraw from motor racing. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people think that those, the, the coupes were the cars they intended to race in 1956. Uh, that's not my understanding of it. My understanding was that the original plan was that they'd have open and closed cars and then just never needed the closed cars. Um, but, yeah, certainly... Um, you know, the, the Mercedes did stop at the end of 1955. So even if they were ever going to be raced, that that absolutely you know nailed down the lid of the coffin, and and that was the end of them. As the story goes, Ullenhout did need to wear uh, hearing aids later in life, perhaps because of <laughs> perhaps because of the the Ullenhout coupe. That's what those two cars are known as, the Ullenhout coupe, named after him. Um, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, we'll never really know because these things won't be sold. But some people will tell you that an Uhlenhaut Coupe is the most valuable car in the world, won't they? Well, someone will tell you it's that. Someone will tell you that it's Sterling's 300 SLR. Um, some will tell you that it's um, the original Silver Ghost Rolls-Royce AX201. Um, who knows? You know, when these cars, you know, when there's only one, or in the case of the Uhlenhaut Coupe, two of them in the world, neither of which will ever be sold, um, it's a completely academic argument. I mean, it is possible that were one to come for sale, which it won't, and were the right bidders available, um, that it could sell for more than any car had ever sold before. I suspect they probably would, but it's not going to happen. So pff, I can't get too excited about it. No, it's not going to happen. And also, it might be that we never find out. It's totally academic. This is not going to happen. But would we know, if it did get sold, would we know what it, get, what it went for? I mean, officially, the most valuable car ever bought or sold it was a 250 gto in a private sale 52 million pounds in 2018 i think um but there are other cars trading hands for greater sums than that aren't there you and i and i'm not going to get into it now but you and i both know um that's what people think to be the greatest price ever paid for a car almost certainly isn't because you know private transactions between you know what possible um interest would anybody have in letting that information get out um you wouldn't so you know nobody the truth is is that other than the person who wrote the check and then even he or she wouldn't know what had happened elsewhere nobody knows what the most money paid for a car is and that's fine by me yeah it, it is fine there are cars being bought and sold very discreetly by private collectors and we just don't hear about them so the, the truth is we will never know what the most valuable car in the world is um it's just not public information is it and much as we might enjoy speculating about it um, okay, well, let's get back to SL road cars. Um, we move into the 60s uh, and the second generation model known as the Pagoda. Really beautiful, lovely little thing. Have, what do you know about those? I'm sure you've driven a couple, have you? Uh, I'm, yeah, I haven't driven a couple. I drove once, one, and it was a very long time ago. Um, and I, I don't remember being knocked out by it. I think they were beautiful cars. I think, to be honest with you, after a 300 SL, which was, you know, many people have called it, I think, quite, quite rightly, the world's first supercar. Pagoda's not a supercar. The Pagoda no, it's a very is, different is, machine, it, isn't it? it? Yeah, it's a very different. I mean, and, and in fact, it's the, it, you know, the Pagoda's probably the car which is more true to what you and I now think of being the sort of the characteristics of the SL, you know, the long distance, comfortable, beautiful touring car. Uh, a Gullwing's not like that at all. A Gullwing is a weapon. 
real, real weapon. I mean, the fastest car in the world by a distance when it was new. Um, whereas the Pagoda, you know, kind of, you know, wanted to be, um, you know, appeal to a much wider audience than that. Um, and I can remember, I can genuinely remember very little about it. I think it was nice to drive. I think it was a pleasant car, but it is not, it's not a car that anybody would ever buy because it, because of, you know, the way that it drove. Um, they would buy it because they would just think this is a beautiful way of just, you know, mooching about from one place to the other and, I, and, I, and i'm completely fine with that um i mean they never put particularly powerful engines in it um i'm about to say they never raced it i'm never aware of anyone ever having raced one um i'm sure somebody might have done but you know mercedes certainly didn't um it was just a lovely long distance cruiser um and you know they're very valuable now um and, and i think deservedly so because they're stunning looking things but no they're absolutely not the driving machines that um that came before no no, same badge as the the 300 SL, but totally different machine in uh, in character. Um, okay, well let's skip forward to the fourth gen, the R129. Oh, can't we do a bit? Can't, can't we do a bit of R107? Okay, <laughs> Go on, okay, okay, I'll be I'll, I'll be really quick. Um, you, you're too young to watch Dallas, aren't you? Yes. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking <laughs> Sorry. about? Sorry. I know. I know it's a TV show. It was a TV. <laughs> oh God, yeah. So this was a TV show uh, which was on in the in the eighties. Uh, it was it was the biggest show in the world at the time. Who shot Jr.? You must know what I'm talking about. You don't, do you? Uh, okay, I'm getting no, completely I, I, blank face. Okay, so Bobby Ewing, Jr.'s younger brother, the goody in the series, he used to drive an R107, um, and it, to the extent, and he became so synonymous with it that if, that if if people look at that, they will say, "Oh, look, there's a Bobby Ewing." Um, uh, <laughs> I love those things. Um, and I don't really know why, because they're not much to drive. Um, they're just wafters. Um, but they, but they wafted really, really well. And I think they're really attractive cars. And also, and also, and also, um, they did a coupe, the SLC. That's a cool thing. That's a cool thing. That's a, you know, and actually, if I was going to have, do you know, particularly if you put money into it, if I was going to have any SL, other than something like a 300, an original 300 SL, which is millions, um, any SL that anyone could remotely afford, that's what I, that's what I'd have. I'd have an, I'd have a 450 SLC. Uh, I just love the look of them. Uh, I think they're just really, really cool cars. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go and check them out. Uh, you might think I'm mad, but um, I really like them. So, and that was that was that car was in production forever. It went into production in 1971, didn't come out again until 1989. So I was five when it started and a motoring journalist when it finished um so yeah <laughs> <laughs> it was um yeah it hung around a bit that's definitely a staying power that car um so i i wouldn't want to completely ignore it so yeah so so on to um on to the 129 yeah the 129 the bruno sacco car um yeah lovely looking thing isn't it uh real slice of sort of 90s yeah drop top semi-exotic i think it's a cool looking thing um please tell me that they're half decent to drive i'd like to they are do you know what i mean they're they're good cars Uh, they're much more dynamic uh i mean they're not sports cars by any stretch but they're much more dynamic than a (laughs) let's gonna call it a bobby ewing um and they were they were really advanced they were the first cars i think which had uh deployable rollover protection i think actually at the launch a journalist binned one in a big, big way, um, you know, flipped it and 
Um, instead of doing what normally happens when journalists crash cars and launched and the, the manufacturer just sweeping them up with a dustpan and brush and pretending it didn't happen and just sticking it under a cover in, a, in an underground vault, they paraded this thing around the place and said, look. And because this, the, the, this rollover bar came up and probably saved the life of the driver who didn't have a mark um, on them. Um, and yeah, so it, was, it also had... Um, it had a this, this won't surprise anybody these days but it but in 1989 it was amazing it had a roof that literally pressed a button the roof went all the way up and you pressed it the other way and it went all the way back down again it had a hard top and you could basically turn it into a coupe um and you literally just put the hard top on top of it you need a couple of people to lift it because it's quite heavy and press the same button and it just locked into place so none of the faff of you know latching this and latching that and clipping this and clip and all that not it just went um and so it was really easy to use. I can remember the, the original 500 SL. And you've got, you got to think back to where things were, what, 32 years ago. 0 to 60 in 5.9 seconds. But yeah, at the time, thinking that was, you know, that was pretty pacey. Um, let alone what the, you know, the, 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 the nutty AMG ones used to go to get on to do. Um, and I haven't driven one for years and years and years. But I reckon that if you've got a nice one, and these things, the problem with these cars is they always go through a phase where they're underappreciated and they don't get looked after and, and, and they don't get maintained and they get baggy and they become horrible to drive. And you drive one and you think, I can't believe that they were that bad. And they probably weren't. But I reckon if I could drive a nice one today, I reckon I'd still really enjoy it. I think it'd be a really cool car. Um, yes, yeah, a big fan of that one. People who have them swear by them, don't they? Um, okay. All right. Well, what about more recent ones? Let's not get too caught up in them. But I do remember driving SL. 55s and 63s um, and thinking they were pretty cool things you know within the sort of boundaries of a, a drop top cruiser um, loads of performance great soundtracks um, I really want to know if you drove the black series model because it looks extraordinary was it hopeless <laughs> look at you nodding your head uh, no it wasn't hopeless um, 670 horsepower <laughs> <laughs> okay um from this nutty twin turbo six liter v12 thing um i drove it when did i drive i drove it in the state somewhere and we drove it on the track it, it was one of those sort of betwixt and between cars um they compromised it so much um that it didn't really work in either environment it was just a bit too stiff and unrefined and um you know, it didn't, you couldn't, you know, they'd lost the convertible roof. Um, and yeah, it, it, it just, and it still wasn't light enough to feel, you know, really great as a road car. And then on a track, it was, it was just a bit cumbersome, but it got on with it properly. I mean, it was a rapid, rapid car and it had an enormous sense of occasion to it. And I, I still think it looks quite cool. Um, it does. But no, big, big arches on it. Yeah, exactly. I, I I couldn't say that it was a great car. I couldn't even really say it was a great SL. Although to date, I believe it's still the most powerful SL. In fact, it is. Um, I'm sure that the current gen or the new generation will rectify that in 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 uh, at some stage. But um, yeah, I mean, it was back in the, the, the days where you never knew whether a you know, a new black edition was going to be, you know, a complete horror like uh, SLK fifty five. Um, or a wonder like a CLK Black. And in fact, the SL, whatever they called it, um, the Black Edition SL, um, was a 65, wasn't it? Was, was, was somewhere between the two. It was pretty, it, 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 was, it was fun. I'm very glad to have made this acquaintance, but I don't want one. 
Uh, okay, let's not talk about SLKs. Uh, the only other SL uh, Mercedes that we could talk about, and I think we have done on this podcast before, so we won't get too stuck in. That's the McLaren Mercedes SLR. Or, no, sorry. Yeah. McLaren SLR Mercedes no. Benz. <laughs> no, that? hang on. It's a Mercedes. It's a Mercedes Benz. Hang on, no, it's not. I know McLaren comes last. Oh my god, I should know this. It's a Mercedes Benz S A M G S L R McLaren or something like that. Well, the only thing I know is the McLaren bit like is tacked on last. It's like they weren't allowed any any, any higher up the running order, um, even though they built it um, and were instrumental in designing it. Um, not a great car. Not a great car. I actually think it's a great looking car. It's a fabulous sounding car. Um, it's got it's got some clever stuff on it. Um, you know, the carbon tub, um, the ceramic brakes, um, the aero was quite cool on it. But it was it was really it was particularly let down by it's got heavy um, despite Gordon Murray's involvement. And Gordon used to get so frustrated with them, um, but they just wouldn't take the weight out of it. Um, and it had that clunky five-speed automatic gearbox because it's the only thing that Mercedes had which would take the torque of the engine, and that really held it back. I, t- I mean, although the brakes were um, amazingly advanced, they were really, really um, like first-gen ceramics, and they had horrible brake feel. Uh, the cockpit was cramped. Um, you know, I can remember driving it and thinking this is going to be like you know a new level for that kind of car, and I just came away from it thinking. What a missed opportunity. Um, yeah, it looks so good, sounds so good, appears so good on paper, and then you drove it, and it was just like... <clears throat> it just wasn't quite there. Um, it just didn't feel finished. You know, one of those cars where you don't think so much about how good it is, but how much better it should have been. Um, and the 722 was better. I think it had a bit more power, a bit less weight. Can't really remember. Um so that was, you know, a step in the right direction. But, you know, the kind of the world moves on fast, doesn't it? And you get caught, caught up in other stuff, and and it's just never been one of it's never been one of those cars. You know, it's not like a sort of, you know, an icon, is it? Um, when it could have been, um, had you know, probably had they listened to Gordon and done, you know, done it a bit more his way. But um, yeah, uh, nice idea, uh, but let down in the execution. And it arrived in that extraordinary year or around that time that also gave us the Enzo, Ferrari Enzo, the Carrera GT, which we will be discussing soon on this podcast. MC12. Yeah, yeah, Ford GT around that time as well. Um, yeah, exactly. So there's some amazing cars in that era and the SLR just wasn't quite one of them, was it? Uh, well, there we go. I did tell you that there were some extraordinary cars that have won both a badge reading SL and a three-pointed star. Um, some couple of clunkers as well, but just interesting stuff throughout. Um, before I end this podcast, was there anything else you want to say about SL Mercedes Benzes? Okay, so if I could have, I mean, money no object. If I could have one, the temptation is to go work Gullwing, um, but actually. Um, the sort of second generation of that car was they did a kind of like convertible one, which obviously didn't wasn't a gullwing because it didn't have a roof. Um, but what the problem with the gullwings were they had um, drum brakes, which means they didn't stop, and they had swing axle rear suspension, which meant um, in certain conditions in cornering they could get 
quite big on you. As I, I, checked, I did the Millimilia once in it, um, in, in, in a gull wing. In fact, twice I've done the Millimilia in gull wings, and they need to be driven a certain way. If you think sort of really early Porsche 911, power on, you know, slow in, fast out. Um, and, but anyway, sorry, I digress. Um, the second generation, the open car, had disc brakes and proper rear suspension. Um, and I've never driven one. But everything I hear about them. So they had the same engine. They still have that amazing 3 litre straight six with 220 horsepower. They still went like the wind. Um, they looked amazing, um, but they actually stopped and went round corners as well. Uh, and I suspect that's probably the SL to have. But um, if anybody's got one, um, let me know because I'd love to try it. But um, yeah, that's, that, that's probably the one for me. Very cool. Good. There you go. There's Mercedes SLs. And as soon as they let us have a go in the new one, we'll let you know if it's any good or not. Um, certainly will yeah good okay well please go and rate and review the podcast um you have been doing it and it does help so thank you everybody um and also go and download the intercooler app just get onto your app store search the int and it'll appear the intercooler uh and you can start your free trial um it costs 4.99 a month after that and 49.99 a year after that so a bit of a saving there just go and check it out start your free trial and subscribe we think it's good Uh, and we'll be back to talk to you all again next week look forward to it thank you Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 